these venture capitalists that have never run a company themselves will tell a founder that has bootstrapped from $49,000 to $64 million, they don't believe that they can make it because they don't have a team when my team is the best team I've ever worked with or seen in my entire life. So I'm now at the stage, finally, where I'm really grateful that I didn't raise capital. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. Badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now, here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have Christina Stemple, the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers. Uh, Welcome, Christina. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, my pleasure. Very excited to have you as well. And I think that everyone would love to get started with the story, how and why you started Farm Girl Flowers. Yeah. So um, I... Love this question. So thank you for asking it. Um, I like to be really clear that it was intentional in wanting to start a business. It wasn't um, that I loved flowers and I just lucked out and turned my hobby into a business. And I think that's the narrative that we often tell with female-founded businesses in, in particular, especially in the creative space. There just seems to be this, this natural conditioning we have to think like if a woman starts a business in a creative space, she must have like loved that medium beforehand. And I knew nothing about flowers. I just knew I wanted to start a business. I wanted it to check some boxes. I wanted to be able to grow really big. I wanted to do something good in the world. I wanted to truly innovate instead of just taking somebody else's idea and then tweak it a tiny bit and then call it my own. I wanted to actually you know, innovate in a space. And I also knew it would need to be bootstrapped. And so um, that was purely because I don't have the pedigree that other people have when they start a business. So they can go down to Sand Hill Road with a fancy deck and say like, believe in me and give me millions of dollars pre-revenue, which is the funniest term I've ever heard too, um, before you make a bill. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't going to be my, my road. And so I naively thought I was going to be able to raise capital once I proved the concept. That wasn't the case. But initially, I just knew I was going to need to bootstrap it. So flowers was the first... you know, Farmer flowers was the first idea I had in this industry of flowers was the first one I found that you know, there weren't any recent players in. And there was a big white space, uh, basically, that nobody had come into. And now I know why, because it's so hard. <laughs> you know, perishability is so hard. But back then, I didn't know why. And so um, naivety is bliss, they say, right? And that's very true. So that's why I started Farmer Flowers was because it ticked all the boxes. I was able to bootstrap it with what I had in my bank account, which a lot of my ideas I couldn't do because I needed millions of dollars, which I did not have in my bank account. I had $49,000. And so it was just the first one that I could do. And so that's why I did it. Oh, I love that story. And you know, it's so interesting, right? Talking to a lot of founders in general, not just female founders. And I love it when you talk about you know the term female founder versus founder in general. A lot of founders, if they knew what they knew now, 
you know, before they started the business, they probably <laughs> wouldn't have done it. Uh, you know, I, and I don't have children. And I, I know you don't either, but I, <laughs> yeah, maybe you knew how hard it was going to be, you know, but you're still happy that you did it. But, you know, a lot of ups and downs happen along the way. And I think something really interesting that you brought up was the pedigree topic. And I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper there of like, you know, what exactly your background was before starting Farm Girl Flowers. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I say I did not have a pedigree. So I didn't go to college. I grew up in a tiny town, 3,600 people, a couple stoplights in Northern Indiana. I grew up in a corn and soybean farm. I knew I didn't want to stay there, but there weren't a lot of opportunities. You know, it was I was raised in a very gender-rolled environment and I had have, have an amazing family. So I don't want this to come across like I'm criticizing them. You know, they did the best they could with what they had and how they were taught. And, you know, but where I grew up and how I was raised was that, you know, there was more emphasis and more importance put on the male children than the female children. And, you know, we were supposed to get married, you know, and have children. And that was the trajectory for us. And you know, so there was no talk about like what we would do in the future. Cause that was just what you do as a woman, you know? And so I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had, all I knew was there wasn't money for college. And so I just worked a lot of jobs. And I mean, a lot of jobs I worked, you know, I moved to New York city when I was 18, two weeks after I graduated high school. And I worked three jobs, seven days a week to try to, you know, make it basically. And I would just fall into Industries based on working really hard. That's my superpower. I work really, really hard. And so I would go in at the bottom and then, you know, get a lot of promotions to go to the top or close to the top. And, you know, so I worked in, you know, everything from, you know, I worked coffee shops and restaurants and like lots of wage level jobs all the way to, you know, I then found myself in hospitality and hotel management. And then I ended up at Stanford University. Um, the first job I had there, and it's very ironic that I ended up at Stanford University with no college degree, but it was catering. Um, you know, I can't. I went from hospitality. I was trying to find something that, honestly, the reason I, I switched was, you know, hospitality is twenty four seven. Like hotels never close, right? And I was like, I knew I wanted to start a business, and I never had time to do it. I wanted to do it on the side. And I always worked 80 hours a week. And so I was like, I'm not going to be able to start a business here. So when I saw that Stanford was hiring you know, a, a director of catering, I was like, well, that's like one little fraction of what I do in hospitality right now. I could do that and start a business. Turns out it's not the job, it's the personality. <laughs> like I will make every 40-hour job into an 80-hour job. And that's just what I did there. But, you know, I'm very thankful for it because every job I've had, I've learned so much from. And, you know, from there, I went to alumni relations. I was the head of alumni relations and campaign outreach for the law school. And that's where I came up with the idea for Farm Girl Flowers because one of the departments I oversaw did the events for the law school. And when the economic downturn happened, all of our budgets were cut back dramatically, but we were in a major campaign, fundraising campaign. And so we needed to do the same amount of events and programs for half the cost. And so that, you know, I dug into the PLs and realized how much we were spending on decor for events, which led me down the rabbit hole of research on why flowers cost so much, because that was where the lion share was spent, food and wine and flowers, basically. And I knew I wasn't getting rid of food and wine, but you know, flowers seemed like a non-necessity. And then I quickly switched from the event space during that research to e-commerce because in 2009, when I was doing this research, the e-commerce space was actually shrinking. And I had researched, you know, thousands of ideas before this, you know, by this time, because I wanted to start a business for at least a decade. And 
it was the first industry that I saw that was declining in e-commerce because that's where everything was growing. And so that's what gave me kind of my light bulb moment of like, oh, this might be the space I need to go into and I could actually disrupt. You know, so that's what I did. And so, you know, so many questions there, but why? What did you find out once you started the company about why the industry was declining online? Yeah, it was declining because it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) The product sucked, the customer experience sucked. The hashtag flower fail is really fun to go look at. And, you know, when I started research, I was like, whoa, like every young consumer is really upset with the product here and the customer experience. And then it would remind me of the times I would send my mom flowers in Indiana and I would have to use one of the the leading e-commerce companies. There was basically three that made up three quarters of the entire space. So that was like my, you know, number one, I was like, okay, three players make up, you know, each of them do almost a billion dollars a year. So there's a lot of market share to be taken here. It's not an overly saturated market. So in those three players, according to the public and all this research I'm doing shows that they're not doing very well at it, which is why it's declining. Yeah. People hate them. Basically. Yeah. And I actually <laughs> think, I mean, this is just my gut and my story in my head. This is not something that research shows, but I don't think anybody's researched this. I actually think the invention of the smartphone is what led to the demise of, you know, or the decline of a lot of these e-commerce companies in flowers because you know, before they would just rely on it being the thought that counts. Like when you send flowers, it's just the thought that counts, right? And younger consumers are much more discerning with their money, right? So if I'm going to spend $100 on something, I want it to be worth $100, what I just spent my money on. And now I know what it looks like. Because even my mom, who literally still signs her text messages, love mom, um, <laughs> you know, I can tell, I know your number, that's <laughs> programmed. Yeah, totally. But she can take a picture of what I sent her and send it to me and be like, oh, I love it. It's so beautiful. But I look at it and I'm like, that was $100, That's literally like $10 <laughs> from the grocery store arrangement. And so I think the fact that, you know, the recipients and the senders are very, we're in the gifting space. So they're different people for us over 70% of the time and industry standards, 80% of the time, you know, now the sender can see what the recipient received and they're not satisfied with spending $100 on something that looks like it was $10 at the grocery store. That's so interesting. And, you know, you have completely disrupted the space, right? I mean, you took what, even after Farm Girl Flowers came out, sometimes people, they would never do this to you, obviously. They probably wouldn't even send you flowers. I don't know if people do, but they send the you know other brands. And I look at them and I'm like, why on earth would you send this to me when there are such better options out there? And do you know I'm friends with Christina, by the way? Like, can you, like, this is insulting. But anyway, not everyone does. And so, uh, you know, I'll get them. And it's just so clear to me how much more beautiful your flowers are. And so, you know, I would love to hear about when you decided, okay, I'm going into flowers. I'm going to be much better, prettier, et cetera, than every other brand out there, you know, and having not loved flowers or understood, like, how did you then create these, you know, beautiful masterpieces with such a, you know, gorgeous brand? Well, thank you for that. That's really flattering. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. Um, you know, when I say this to men, I can tell that they're like rolling their eyes on the inside, but I think you'll understand this. I think it really matters that I'm a woman. And I think it matters that most of my leadership team are women as well. And all of our competitors, 100% of our competitors that are large-scale e-commerce flower, direct-to-consumer flower companies are men, 100%. And the reason I think that matters is because I understand that you have to care about the product. Like the product comes first. You can't 
just worry about the bottom line and be like, well, these flowers are cheaper. So I'm going to use these. They're ugly. Like women don't want those flowers. Right. So like (laughs) we always say we're a product first company and we're going to make sure that we use better flowers, higher quality flowers, design bouquets, which when I was pitching, I couldn't try to, you know, all the 50 year old white men I was pitching to trying to get them to understand the difference between a design bouquet and like the flower flat top that comes from our competitors they don't see the difference. I'm like, there's a huge difference. You know, we have designers that you literally plop it in a vase and it looks good versus you get this huge tall flower flat top with a little tiny vase. You have to design it yourself. You know, there's a big difference there. And so, you know, when I was trying to figure out, you know, cause I knew nothing about flowers. I like taught myself from YouTube. I Googled everything. Like really, there's no reason that you can't learn anything anymore. You don't have to go to the library, you know? So that's what I did. And, you know, then I started reading all these flower arranging books. And I very quickly donated them all to a book recycling program because I was like, why am I trying to copy someone else's aesthetic that I don't like? Like I didn't like any of them. So I was like, you know, the ones that I liked, I couldn't do because they, you can't move them. Like they're very intricate and they're like pieces of artwork. So I had to figure out like, okay, I need to figure out how I can engineer a bouquet that can be in transit at first, just locally. And then it got even harder, like engineering a bouquet that can be shipped across the United States and still look good when it gets there. There's been a lot of like iterations on the design, but what I did essentially was like throw out all, you know, the the playbook of what people are doing and just designed what I wanted to receive. I was like, what do I want to receive? I want to receive something that doesn't look too fussy. It doesn't look, you know, I don't want, you know, when, when people would say like, you know, I want a modern bouquet and you look up modern bouquets and it's like 12 white roses lined up in a glass cube with like green leaves inside the water around the, I'm like, this is not modern. This might've been modern in 1982, but it's not for a young consumer now when I was starting it in 2010. So I literally just was like, what do I want to receive? And then I designed a bouquet that I would want to receive. And at first it was so funny because the other people in the floral world would make fun of me all the time on social media everywhere. And at the flower mart, when we moved in there, I mean, the things that they would say were ridiculous about how like, I don't what they follow say. the rules <laughs> for floral design. Look, she's putting pairs together of this and you don't mix some video orchids with any other flower. And I'm just like, I don't care what the rules are. I just want something that looks pretty to me. And now I'm actually really proud. We created a category, like a new design of flowers. Like everybody's now looks like a farm girl flower bouquet. And I know florists hate it, but I hear it all the time that like customers will call their local florists even and ask for a farm girl aesthetic bouquet, which to a designer is kind of like a, not what you want to hear. But I just think it's really funny that there's like rules anyway, like flowers are just supposed to make you happy and look beautiful. That like, that's their job to make you feel good and look beautiful. So, you know, we just kind of, you know, I created something I wanted to receive and didn't care about rules of design. Yeah, I would have never thought there were rules in what flowers you can pair together. I guess it's like uh, stripes and um, yeah. plaids or, or white after like Labor that. Day or whatever. And I'm like, well, I <laughs> oh, looks like I'm breaking the rule today. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a winter white. Yeah, there's rules anyway that are antiquated and should not be rules. So, oh yeah, that is hilarious. Well, and you know, so you mentioned that initially when you started the company you were delivering locally, right? And so I still remember the bicycle 
delivery that you had and it, with the burlap bag. I'd also love to hear about the burlap bag, by the way, and how you wrapped that into the, the whole concept of what you were creating. And, you know, it was so cool to see, right, you know, outside from my office. But I have to imagine that, you know, in San Francisco, having people on bicycles that it wasn't, and definitely if you wanted to go anywhere outside of these cities, you couldn't put bicycles in every single city in the United States of America or potentially internationally. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So the idea for bicycles first, it actually is funny because it it wasn't my idea. It was my friend Brett's idea. And this is before like all the food delivery companies were using bicycles. So this was actually a novel concept. So like everything that Farm Girl did was a very novel concept than other industries also started. So like, but when I say it now, people are like, well, everybody uses bicycle curves. Like, no, nobody did then in 2010. <laughs> I know. Nobody remembers that though. Exactly, but like they right? didn't. I remember and they didn't. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it came up because I was having margaritas and tacos with my friend Brett and we were sitting outside and talking about this. It was his company that was building my first website for me. And it wasn't what they did, but he was doing it as a favor for me. And we're talking about the website and about the business I was starting. And I was like, yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how to do delivery in San Francisco because you know, I get like four parking tickets a week. <laughs> like, I can't imagine like how we're going to park and then deliver flowers downtown San Francisco. And a bike courier like rode by while we were talking about this. And Brett's like, what about a bike? You know, and I was like, that's a good idea. You know, so that's how literally that idea came about. And it definitely became a signature of like who we were, but it wasn't scalable. To your point at all, it was not scalable. And it also wasn't cost effective for us at all, even at the time. I mean, when we finally made the very hard decision to not move forward with bike courier delivery, I mean, we were subsidizing a lot of money per boat. I, I mean, I think per order, it was like $16 or something for each delivery that was by bike because, you know... And that was a loss? Was that a loss? A loss. A loss, yeah. So you were losing $16. Oh, only on the bike ones, though. The bike ones, yeah. We were okay. shipping most <laughs> of our orders at that point. Yeah. It was more cost-effective at the beginning. But then when all these other industries started using bike couriers, the payout for workers' comp became really high. Like there's a biannual report that comes out with the highest payouts for the insurance industry. And at least this is what the carriers told me. And we got dropped by like everybody when all these food companies started using bike couriers. And I don't think it was like that there were so many more accidents per capita, but it was there were more accidents in general because there were more couriers delivering things. And so no workers' comp company would pick us up. No insurance company would pick us up for workers' comp. So we had to go in the state fund, which is basically COBRA for businesses, and spend <laughs> like half a million dollars in six months on like workers' comp. And this is when we're like a $4 million company or something. I was like, this is crazy that like an eighth of our revenue is going to workers' comp, you know? Just for the bikes, right? Yeah, just for bikes. Just for <laughs> when, like, like nine bike couriers we have or, you know, 11 bike couriers we have. And so that's when it started to become just too cost prohibitive to move forward. We kept it as long as we could. I think we kept it till the end of 2018, even when we we're losing a lot of money, just because I was kind of chalking it up to it was really great marketing for us. It got the word out. People loved it. People, I mean, it was the Chronicle all the time. It was one of those photographed images in San Francisco as one of our bike couriers with, you know, bike baskets full of flowers. I loved it. I still remember when you stopped doing it as a consumer, right? That would buy Farm Girl for people and send them. Because what happened was... 
And, you know, I'm like, you just all the, I'm sure any business knows it's like, okay, you have to, you're going to get complaints no matter what. I don't think we complain, but I was not happy about this because I had, you know, last minute wanted to send flowers to somebody in San Francisco. And they're like, oh, well, the next shipping date is, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, can't they just bring it on the bike <laughs> to the person? <laughs> it's like, they don't do that anymore. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh, well, yes, we'll just send it on the day that it comes and let them know that, you know, there's, you know, a nice little yep. surprise on the way. Uh, so, I mean, when it's like $26 versus $8, that's the difference, I think, between a bike courier delivery at cost for us right. versus shipping it via FedEx in our own city or, you know, UPS, one of the carriers in our own city. I was like, you know, and we weren't making any money. And perishability is so hard that every dollar counts, right? Like, and, and as an unfunded company as well, like, it just was like, I knew that I was holding on to it too long and it was an emotional thing that I was holding on to it for. And that wasn't wise for the business. Totally. You know? I mean, I've, I've done so many emotional decisions uh, that, you know, not wanting to shut down Europe, right? That stayed open way too long because everyone knew I had a Europe office, right? And you, the second you stop doing something in your head, the perception is that everyone's going to think you're a complete failure. And actually, I find out from people all the time, nobody thinks, you know, I know for sure nobody thinks you're a failure. I know nobody thinks I do. But, no. you know, it's like you love the bikes. People love the bikes. You know, as a consumer in San Francisco, I expected that the bike person could just drive the flowers right over to whoever's office it was that I wanted them to get to. But, you know, for your business, what made sense financially? And you talk about that difference between $26 and $8. So, you know, that's a 18 <laughs> Is that the correct math there? Well, okay. <laughs> that's $18 difference, which to most people doesn't seem like that. That much money, right? But when your profit is, you know, yeah. a, <laughs> the, right? Non existent. Yeah, right. And then it's yeah. like that $18 makes a massive, massive difference, especially yeah. at scale. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people think about that. And the other thing I never thought about until you explained this to me was the perishability issue. So I think a lot of people that are listening to this also, you know, wouldn't even think about that, right? I mean, unless they get flowers that are dead on arrival, <laughs> that might be when you think about it. But in terms of it, it's not just getting the flowers there fresh. And I don't know if you want to get into it, but it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would absolutely 1000% never do another perishable <laughs> product company ever, ever. And so when people like want to like pick my brain because they want to start a flower company, like, Literally, I'm just like, don't do it. Like, just don't do it. It's not like I'm afraid of competition. I'm just saying for your own good, because I care about you. Totally. Like, don't do it. You know, just like exactly what you said earlier. If I knew then what I know now, I definitely would not have started it. I'm glad I did most days. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I did. But it is the hardest thing I've ever done because what I didn't think about, what nobody thinks about is supply chain is extremely challenging. And the transportation of supply chain, getting flowers to you have to be cold chain um, for most. But then if you have tropicals, it can't be cold chain. So then you need different trucking companies for tropicals versus non-tropical flowers and things because you can't put refrigerate those. But most need to be refrigerated inbound. And then outbound, you can't refrigerate them, right? We cannot... I mean, yes, FedEx and UPS are going to figure out miraculously how to do cold chain transportation for COVID vaccines now for <laughs> Pfizer. But for regular companies like us, not happening, right? right? So... We have to figure out how to then get the flowers that come in. We have three days, basically, 
So even grocery has way longer shelf life than flowers. So we have three days. So we can't also, we can't miss order. And the orders come in, most of them come in within 48 hours of when they're delivered. And we have to plan, like right now we're working with growers for like Mother's Day next year and beyond and Thanksgiving next year. So we are giving projections right now, a year out for what we're going to do next year at this time. So that way our growers can buy the seeds, tubers, you know, all the things they need to buy and then plan it for us. And the, you know, planning cycles are anywhere from six weeks to nine months, 10 months up to three years for peonies. So you're literally doing projections years out for where you're going to be. And if you miss order, you'll go out of business that quickly, you know? And like, literally that's the times that you see us do a flash sale, we miss ordered a lot of times, (laughs) you know? And we rarely do them because we're really good at it. But like, you know, it's, you have a cooler full of flowers that you're looking at and you're like, well, this is $80,000 worth of flowers in here. And I don't have sales for them. So it doesn't happen very often because I have an amazing person on my team who does our projections and does them way better than I ever could. And is a lot of times so spot on, it's like 0.8% you know, percent off. It's great. But that's a complexity that most businesses don't have to think about. Absolutely. Like if I'm selling a sweater, I can sell it on clearance four months from now. But if I miss order and don't have the orders for those flowers that eight months ago I ordered from the farm to plant for me, and then I get them in and they're in my cooler, I have three days to figure out what to do with them to sell them. That is insane. I, I can't, <laughs> I can't yeah. even imagine and the stress, right? That comes along with the very narrow margin of error that you have and how far ahead you have to plan. And then the fact that once it's done, it's done. You can't sell it. So even like you said, in fashion, that's planned so far in advance and you're trying to figure out what the future trends are going to be or create them. And I had no idea about peonies, but I was going to say, I love the fact that you do those. Um, And (laughs) because I don't know if like where you grow... Are they still a seasonal flower or is it, can you get them more? And is there a larger window in which you can get them? They have one of the shortest windows of any flower. Yep. Most are like six weeks long. Yep. Some are three weeks long that that farm has peonies in season. And seasonal here in the United States is different than seasonal in South America versus seasonal in, you know, Holland and Europe. So it's all a puzzle. Supply chain is like trying to find farms in different geographic regions that can grow things for you at different periods of the year. So you can then piece it together. Like my goal is someday we will have peonies year round because <laughs> that is every woman's favorite flower. Yep. I do think we'll probably have to buy farms and do it ourselves because in agriculture, it's not the most business-minded people you're working with, unfortunately. And so a lot of them are multi-generational and you know, we all like... If people hear, like I've researched all the things around that, it's like a 66% fail rate, second generation, 92% fail rate, third generation for companies. And so it's it's no different than that in agriculture. So I do think the first farm we'll buy will probably be a peony farm. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll need to buy them in many different regions in the world because you'll have six weeks here and then you have four weeks here and then you have you know eight weeks here and at different times, like November here and April May here and then June, July here and then August here. And so right now we can get peonies in very short supply about six months out of the year. Okay. Um, but we're, we're trying to get it for 12. But they also are different quality. The best quality peonies you're ever going to get are closest to you. Like what's, and for us, that'd be like California, you know, it'd be West Coast peonies here in some Alaska. And you have like a 
six week window at most for that. It's end of April to, to end of May. I mean, that's it. Wow. And you learned all this after you started the company. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. After. You know, yeah. and it'll be great. And I, you know, I know you've bought some real estate and stuff like that to be a global real estate owner, but you never thought that peonies were going to be what drove your global real estate strategy. Funny how, <laughs> how that works out. Yeah, growing up on a farm, I always I couldn't wait to get off the farm. <laughs> and so, and even when I started farm, I'm like, I will never buy farms. That is too risky. You know, growing up on a farm, you see, like you're you're beholden to Mother Nature. There's so much risk in farming. You can have a drought one year and then flooding the next year, and your crop is gone both years in a row. And so, I always thought there's no way I would own a farm. But then working with other farms now and having to trust them to grow what they're supposed to grow for you, and then a lot of the industry just I like to be fully transparent and it gets me in trouble sometimes, but like they just, you know, they'll, they'll make promises and then not deliver because someone else will come around and try to take your crop basically and offer more money. And that happens all the time in this industry. And they say that they're going to give you this number and then they give you 10% of that number and it's for like mother's day. And so then your last minute scramble you know, trying to source. Yeah. You're just scrambling because you literally have, you know, $10 million worth of orders in the system and you have flowers to fulfill 2 million of it. And then you have to pay more than you should have to pay. And then your flower cost is way too high and you make no profit. And you just worked a hundred hours a week and your team just killed it to not make any profit and stuff like that. So <laughs> now that's made me rethink like, okay, well, we're just going to own the farms too. Like if people can't operate like farm girl flowers where we can grow hundred percent year over year and still do it well, then we'll just have to do it ourselves. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Good for you though. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about. And you know, another thing that I really... I mean, your business is doing, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue. I don't know if you want to share the number, but you are completely bootstrapped. You had $49,000 in the bank. Um, Betts is bootcamp bootstrapped as well, but I, we did have, you know, do not have, you know, quite the revenue traction that you do. Um, however, you tried to raise capital at one point. And I, I just, I find this story to be fascinating. And uh, I would love for you to tell us about the 104 no's that you got. <laughs> oh, 104 no's. And first, let me say like, doesn't matter if you have the revenue traction or not. Like I have so much respect for what you've built because, you know, I think that we over glamorize funding so much so that like when people hear that you're bootstrapped, it's like kind of a, a it's an insult. Like, oh, well, you must not be good enough. And it's like, no, 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 I'm way better. (laughs) Because I've had to bootstrap, because you've had to bootstrap, you know where every dollar is going. You have to be profitable. Like this whole thing on like the Bay Area, especially like being like, there's no path to profitability for so many companies. I'm like, why? That just seems so silly and stupid. And like, why are we... You know, and every list is like, these are the top 10 female entrepreneurs to watch, which (laughs) irks me because no one says these are the top 10 male entrepreneurs. It's just entrepreneurs if you're a male, right? right? But, um, you know... With like one token female on the list. <laughs> exactly. And, but all it is that those lists are just those, you know, editors and those, you know, people going to like Crunchbase and seeing who's raised the most money. And it's like, why is that the benchmark for success is how much money you've raised? Why is the benchmark not... What kind of company are you building? How profitable are you? How is it scaling? You know, how are you treating your team? You know, like all the things that really should matter about companies don't matter anymore. It's how much money you've raised. So it's like, why is that any different than going to a bank and taking out a huge loan? And we don't look at people with huge loans and debt as, you know, successful. So that's a whole nother aside. But the funding piece is I'm very passionate about for that reason, but also just because, you know, 
as a female, a solo female founder, I have less than a 2% chance of raising capital. And I found that very evident. Um, and that's why I think so many female founders bring on a male co-founder. And I've talked to many of them like, you just got to bring on a male, like a token white male to like get money. And who went to Stanford? Stanford helps, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Or worked at one of the big tech companies, you know? And so what's been really frustrating to me is that all of our younger, like companies that started after us that were started by tech guys, a hundred percent of them with strikingly similar companies, Burlap Wrap Bouquets, which was my creation, we talked about a little bit earlier, but, you know, and bike deliveries. I mean, that look as close, I'm allowed to say legally strikingly similar, but you can draw the conclusion of what you... Yes, copycat. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say the word, but strikingly similar companies. And all of them were able to go get money from venture capital pre-revenue before they ever sold a bouquet. And I have tried to raise for many years capital and was always told just random reasons what like my team doesn't look like that was the most recent reason was that at first it was they didn't think I could get national shipping going so I was like okay I'll just show you guys and I put my head back down I stopped trying to raise capital and I was like I'll just get national shipping going so that's what I did and then I went back to them and said okay I did it yeah. <laughs> you know still no money <laughs> yeah so now you're going to invest and then then it was uh no we just don't think that, you know, we believe in you, but your team doesn't, you know, you don't have a team. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have a team. We're growing at a hundred percent year over year, 50 to hundred percent every single year since we started. How would I not have a team? Do you think that I do like this year? I will share because I don't have a board because we have no investors. So I can share whatever I want without <laughs> exactly anyone off basically. You know, this year, I think we're going to do $64 million in revenue. And I don't know a single perishable product company that's done that. There might be out there, just none that I've seen. And the only company I've seen that has done that with product, not like software, but like hard good product is Patagonia, which is like my guiding light of a company. I love them so much. So um, one day I hope that we're looked at in the same way that they are. And, you know, so it's hard to do that. So the fact that these venture capitalists, which are, you know, I used to think were the smartest people in the room because I was intimidated by them and because we over glamorize what they do, you know, they're, they're telling me I don't have a team, but how in the, is one person doing $64 million, like making the book? No, No. I'm not, I'm not, (laughs) you know, it takes, it takes an amazing team to be able to do. And that's 98% year over year growth during the year of COVID. And so it's very offensive to me that these venture capitalists that have never run a company themselves will tell a founder that has bootstrapped from $49,000 to 64 million. They don't believe that they can make it because they don't have a team. When my team is the best team I've ever worked with or seen in my entire life. So I'm now at the stage finally, where I'm really grateful that I didn't raise capital and I will not give it. I've made this promise to my team because I probably gave 30 to 40% of my time trying to raise capital over a span of like four years. And what that tells me is I just wasted a lot of time. And that wasn't fair to my team either. Because if I have a 2% chance of raising capital, I should have given it 2% of my time. And I didn't. And so we would be doing 200 million right now, potentially, if I hadn't have done that. So I will not... Now I get emails, several emails a week right now from people wanting to invest. And I literally will not take a meeting. I'm like, I've gone down that road so many times. I've wasted so much time. 
I love sending my emails back saying we're not looking for capital. We're absolutely fine on our own. And um, I won't. <laughs> yeah, we're profitable. Yeah. Oh, wait, are yeah, any of your yeah. other companies profitable? No. Okay, here we go. Exactly. Uh, and are they growing at 100% year over year with profit? So we actually don't need it now for the first time ever. And I won't take another meeting. I won't waste one more minute on it. Well, and, and you can do the back of the napkin, right? 104 no's. That's not 104 meetings, right? That's 104 people that you had multiple meetings with that you prepared, you researched, you, you know, each one of those no's was probably, you know, at least 10 hours on the minimum of time that you put in there, not to mention driving from San Fran or from, you know, Half Moon Bay. Fine. Many of them made me fly to them in like DC or Chicago, or I had to fly to many of them. On your own time? Yep. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, and you're only flying there for that meeting. Yes. And so, I mean, that is you know, DC, I think it's, just, you know, so just airtime alone, mm-hmm. obviously you can do other things, but it's just, you know, sp- I talk about spinny, 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 and it's, you know, spinning your wheels. And I think as a business person, you know, especially running a services company, you know, on our services side, right? You know, we have our technology platform, which involves less spinning of wheels, but, you know, our team can spend, you know, months, Mm-hmm. On a search, if it's a contingency search, send you know dozens of candidates, get all those people ready for interviews, and nobody gets hired. And you know we do everything in our power to make sure that that does not happen. And now you know we've built a lot better systems, etc. But I just you know for your you and it just infuriates me that people would waste your time like that, and it's something that that needs to be protected. So. You know, we did touch briefly on the burlap bag, but I'd love to wrap up with like understanding how on earth you came up with it and where you find all the burlap. (laughs) That is a problem right now. Uh, We grew faster than what our burlap sourcing (laughs) has, um, which has been an issue recently. So yeah, the burlap uh, bag was my brainchild. I came up with 14 different ideas. I intentionally wanted to not use plastic because I was trying to not have more landfill waste. So I was trying to be as green as possible. And when I was researching, when I was starting farming, I was like, oh my gosh, everybody, cellophane that can't be recycled in most states is a huge problem. Like, you know, last year we saved 1.2 tons or something of plastic by not using cellophane. That's a great number. You should put that out there more. Yeah. It's crazy. The amount of waste with cellophane and it's also ugly. So I was like, what can I do? I basically was trying to come up with a Nike swoosh. I wanted something, you know, it was the beginning of social media. And I was like, if people are photographing this and you don't see a tag that says Farm Real Flowers, how will they know it's us? I want like a swoosh on it that you don't have to see the word Nike and people just know. So the only place I could really do that because I knew the aesthetic would be ripped off and there's nothing I could do with that legally, right? So it couldn't be because of the design of the bouquet was the wrap. And so I was like, I tried many different iterations from, you know, like recycled denim that I would go to like Goodwills and get it and then cut it up and wrap it in that. And I was like, this is going to be a nightmare to scale. Like there were so many things that didn't work with a lot of the ideas, but then I got it down to a few options and I just sent out pictures to my, my girlfriends and said, which one do you prefer? And everybody preferred the burlap. What were the other options? There was one that was a chalkboard paper, basically, that you could write the card on the paper, which I thought was kind of cute back then. It was everything was like rustic back in 2010 was kind of the aesthetic. There was that one. 
hemp is another biodegradable fabric. So there was like a hemp fabric that I found that wasn't too cost prohibitive, but it didn't look that cute, but it's hundred percent biodegradable too. Cause I didn't want to use, I either wanted upcycled fabric or I wanted something that you could compost. And so hemp and jute were the only things I could come up with. So with the burlap, I wasn't actually thinking coffee bags. I was thinking potato sacks because I come from Indiana from a farm. But then I was researching like who grows potatoes. I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to ship it from Idaho, you know, here. But then I was like, oh, there's coffee roasters here. And so I just emailed a bunch of them and Riffle Roasters, it's an email owned coffee company got back to me and was like, yeah, sure. Well, and I thought I'd have, need to pay for it. I was like, could I buy your burlap? And and they were like, oh, we'll just, we'll give it to you. Um, just come on these days and pick it up. And so that was enough to start. And then we quickly just ran out. And so we recently, until, well, I say until recently, we're getting a lot from Pete's Coffee and it was wonderful, but they just, uh, so if anybody's listening to Pete's Coffee, they just implemented a new policy where they shred it instead of whatever they did with before. And so we can't get it from them anymore. So we have been really working hard and to get enough uh, burlap right now and might have to switch because, you know, all of the strikingly similar companies that wrap theirs in burlap, they use store-bought burlap, right? Um, they just buy rolls <laughs> of burlap because it's cheap. But that defeated the purpose. I wanted to upcycle something. I wanted less waste, not more. I didn't right. want to you know, use more oil to create more <laughs> burlap, more jute to then wrap our bouquets. So we could do that. And we have in pinches before, but you know, it's not, it's not the ideal. So if anybody is listening that has large sources, um, you know, we have blue bottle and some others that are like donating, but we need a larger source or peeps to come back around and let us get the burlap. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I just had got a huge lesson in coffee too. I didn't even know burlap was involved in, in coffee production. So yep. now I, I learned a lot today. We actually trademarked it too. So another interesting fact about the burlap is I trademarked thinking that would protect it but I didn't know enough. And so one of my big lessons that I tell uh, entrepreneurs are starting out is I was told by some you know smart people to get a lawyer and protect whatever you could. And I was like, I have $49,000. I can't get a lawyer um, and spend half that on that. And I wish I would have because it's a trade dress you have to get, not a trademark. And so one of those strikingly similar companies, we had a court battle with and it didn't end well because I didn't trade dress it early enough. Oh, um, and they knew that and they pounced on that. And so um, that's why all those strikingly similar companies can use burlap is because I lost the court case because I didn't get the right kind of protection. And because you didn't know what you didn't know, exactly. right? It's always just crazy when you find stuff out and it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, great. Yeah. Now I know. Make sure to tell all my friends. Yeah. I've learned so much about the legal system though. And it's just really sad to me that we, it's not about what's right and wrong. It's just about what the law says. Right. You know? And so the judge literally told me in that case that my problem was that I thought what was right and wrong aligned with what was legal and illegal and nothing could be further from the truth. That was from the judge's mouth. No, that's crazy. So, mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. But I'm like a right fighter. So I was like, no, this is wrong. These tech bros just stole my idea. And all that. And it's like, well, that's, it's legal what they did. And I'm like, okay. You still kick their ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. They're not in business anymore. So that's good. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. 
From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Vets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at vetsrecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies.